This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see Right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. Guten Abend, film lovers, and welcome to Film vs. Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hot up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor? In this episode, we're infiltrating the Third Reich, with two World War II epics made 40 years apart. One is a 1960s blockbuster made for an audience that still had a fresh memory of the war. The other is a knowing homage to cinema made by one of the most well-known and stylized auteurs working in Hollywood. Yes, today we're talking about Brian Hutton's Where Eagles Dare and Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bustards. (laughs) (laughs) I'm filmmaker and card-carrying Nazi puncher Craig Anderson, (laughs) and today I'm joined by my two best friends from high school, resident cinephile and a man who always has a satchel of TNT with him, it's Herschel Isaacs. Hi, fellas. Um, people might have thought that we were slowing down a little bit. Last couple of episodes have not been <laughs> crackerjack action. We are back into the action today. This is really two very famous action movies against we're each other. We're back. We're back. So sorry if you fell asleep last week with the love stuff. <laughs> we're back. We're also joined by Herschel's identical twin brother. It's the associate commandant of film <laughs> at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. I like that. You're a Nazi puncher. Mm-hmm. He's like the cinephile. I'm actually a Nazi. After this episode, we're beating it. you up in the yeah, toilet. Now, the three of us met in year four at our local public school on Durragland in Western Sydney. But before that, we lived very different lives. I grew up out west around Blacktown and Penrith, and you two were much further west, living through apartheid in Cape Town, (laughs) South Africa. But when we met in the playground, there was one movie that we'd both seen the year before, and we really bonded over it. I'm talking about 1985 Richard Donner adventure film, The Goonies. Well, we, we, we saw Goonies, and I remember yeah. talking to you in the playground about it, because it was like hot news. And, yeah. But I'd seen it um, at uh, Penrith with mum and dad, yep. uh, at the Hayden Lawson Cinema in Penrith. And then I remember going afterwards to a t-shirt shop down the road on yes. High Street Penrith, and it had the skull on the that brings across up Jolly Rogers. That just saying High Street Penrith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there yeah. were like yeah. t-shirt so shops there. there. Yeah. And, and I just bought this t-shirt. It was an off-market one, <laughs> wasn't actually the Goonies, but I was so excited. Now, where did you guys see it? For Bruce and I, the Goonies holds a very, very special place in our heart because what had happened was my mum and dad took Bruce and I to a suburb called Mitchell's Plain, right? Right. And that was to a cinema over there and had a double feature. It was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom followed by the Goonies. By the Goonies. Now, if you put those two movies together. Can you imagine those two movies together? Did Two you seven-year-olds. Did you like Indiana Jones at that point? Yeah. Oh, well, funny you should say that because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom at that point, which we'd seen a week ago, yes. was our favorite. favorite. We had agreed. It's our now number one. No, I'm not making this up. I remember vividly having sure. a major discussion with Herschel saying, 
this is now going to be our favorite. No, I didn't. I wasn't saying it had to be, but mm-hmm. we agreed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, at that time in our lives, where Eagles there as seven years was our number second two. favorite number movie. Two. Really? It was officially number two in our list of five. Okay, so I can't remember what the you, others were. You're going for a double feature with yes. this new ring in no, the Goonies. The Goonies. I, even, so, I even remember little details to this extent. The chairs that we were sitting in with these blue kind of like oh, felt sort that. of chairs. The movie begins, and to our listeners out there, the very famous scene where the kids come together and they discover a map in the in the attic area. Remember when they mm-hmm. go upstairs? Then they leave and they're heading across. And there's some wonderful music. Um, Cindy Lauper, Goonies are good enough. Mm-hmm. And then Bruce <laughs> and I, we hear a noise coming from our right hand side, and it's a mum. Now. A mum. <laughs> See, at this point, you haven't said what it is. Uh, no, I'm yeah, okay. the listeners thinking, what about your mum? Okay. yelling. Well, so well, my mum had a remarkable capacity to snore at incredible oh, volumes. No. And she, so sta- she fell asleep and she started snoring, but she was snoring so well, my loud. My mum also had sleep apnea. So the thing is, she'd <laughs> snore mm. and then like shock herself awake and then go straight back to snoring again. So the only thing you could hope for is like, okay, if that had happened when there was like a lot of noise and everything like that, that's fine. But when it's a bit quiet, you're in a very, very difficult situation. And it was really, for us, it couldn't be redeemed. Yeah, we had to go home. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on, you didn't get to see the whole movie? No, we had to leave. My dad got us all up. We had to give my dad woke up. Oh, no. Because it was that bad. My dad woke my mum up and the four of us went home. (laughs) But when did you see Goonies again? We saw it soon after that again. um, Yeah. Yeah, we went to the movies to see it. Because, I mean, everyone knew it was a, this big event. Yeah. And, you know, we obviously, can you imagine what we felt like leaving? Mm. Like, the boys are just, like, arm in arm, <laughs> skipping up to go on this big adventure. And it's like, we got to go home. You oh, know? that's so, so that sad. was rough. I remember that. Like, that was a formative experience. Because, <laughs> no, because also, like, it's hard to explain, I think, maybe to some people now, movies don't have the same kind of cachet. But for us... Movies were like a thing you did in your life. That was yeah. so important. Wait, wait, wait. When you said, you know, this was apartheid, was this a yeah. cinema that was segregated? It must have been because... Yeah, it has to be. Oh, well, Mitchell's Plain was a coloured right. suburb. Right. So, I mean, because we li- lived under, obviously, formalised institutional segregation. So we could only go to certain... You couldn't go to any white places. Mm-hmm. So we were all... So Herschel and I coloured. My parents are coloured. And so we would have to go to a cinema that you could go to. Um, and right. So or catch public transport in certain carriages or whatever. Yeah, so like yeah, if we yeah. call the train, you have to catch a certain carriage and yeah. things like that. Okay, now what about the movie The Goonies? You've, we've all seen it since then. We've grown yeah. up on it. I reckon it holds up. I love Anne Ramsey. Anne Ramsey plays the, the, the woman, the villain, the big boss, Oh, she's the mother. Awesome. From yeah. Throw Mama on yeah, 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 the Train. Yeah, yeah. She's so good. It's also for me like <laughs> one, one of a handful, maybe she's more than a handful. Crap out of you, though, for me, it's like maybe one of ten movies that I can't separate from my memory of it, from the nostalgia aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So you might, you know, if you watch it, you might say, oh, is it really the greatest movie of all time? But for me, it's not like that. It's like Back to the Future for me. So I can watch it again and again. And I I take a lot of, like, I I enjoy so many little aspects of it, just the kids hanging out together. It feels very Steven Spielberg to me. and then when I watch Stranger Things, I'm seeing the Goonies in Stranger Things yes. mm-hmm. when they're riding their bikes. But interestingly, Stranger Things is clearly riffing on those sorts of things, yeah. right? Like and intentionally, yeah, of course. Yeah, and one of the other things, as an adult, something that I got interested in, say, like in my teens or something, was I really got into the whole Cindy Lauper thing and the music. Mm-hmm. And so I liked the fact that Cindy Lauper was the driving part of the soundtrack. And so, you know, one of my favorite pop songs is Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Mm-hmm. And, and that was like a major sort of 
a feminist statement of the 1980s. Girls just want to, that was a really big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And so I like the Cindy Lauper as being the sort of transgressive, slightly person on the fringe that gave the Goonies this, I don't know, like a slightly tougher skin than you might have expected if you'd put a more, like a Carly Simon soundtrack on it or something like that. The sure. other interesting thing about the Goonies is that um, if, you look at the, if you look at the cast of the Goonies, so many of those people have, go on to have pretty big careers. Yes. I mean, obviously, you could never have expected Josh Brolin to now end up being in Dune and Dune 2. Yeah. He's the older brother in, in the ah, first yeah. Goonies. Yeah. You How got did Sean Josh Brolin come back into the scene of things? Okay, so that's the quite guy interesting. was gone for like 20 years. Well, don't, well he, he catches on again really with No Country for Old Men. But is that the first moment that he pops back into the scene? Because from there, he's a leading man. This guy's now opening movies. We did Sicario as well. That was a very so successful. That was, that yeah, was that very was successful. You have Ki Kwan, like from Data, who who won the Oscar, Oscar last year. Winner, yeah. yeah. So that's that's strange in itself, right? No, look at the cast and what they go on to. Well, but also the? Robert Downey, who doing his opera oh, he stuff. Was great. He's so good. Who's the um, the, the, what about the, Joe, the Joey Joey Pan, Pantaleone? What's his oh, name? Oh yeah, yeah. Joey pa- Pants. Pantalia, pan, pan, yeah. Pantaleone. Oh, from uh, <laughs> <laughs> see at this point, um, Midnight Run, The Matrix. Yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. one of the great characters. And he's actors. excellent in it. Who's the uh, the blonde haired girl who comes along for the trip? She did a whole bunch of was it bits oh, of John Hughes Martha and stuff Plimpton, here. I think she. I love her in it. I think she's just wonderful. She's kind of like this. Slightly more fringe, cool character. Mm. You know, she's not the obvious, um, you know, she, she's not Molly Ringwald out of The Breakfast Club. She's the person who's a bit edgy and who's a bit... Uh, oh, she's in Parenthood. Know. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she's yeah, amazing yeah. in Parenthood. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. If you think about Robert Davi at the time, right, think about what this guy's involved in. You've got License to Kill, the Bond movie. Yeah. Now, License to Kill didn't so go good. well, but yeah. I still think he's one of the best he Bond villains of all time. So but you've also got him in Die Hard. And you've got him in the Goonies. Agent Johnson. Agent, Agent Johnson. Johnson. Special Agent Johnson. Agent Johnson. <laughs> One really quick thing on the Goonies to finish off. The three of us were over at Bruce's place last weekend mm-hmm. uh, to usher in the new projector and screen that Bruce bought. And <laughs> put in the b- b- better than I could have expected uh, it to be. It was absolutely so brilliant. I encourage everybody to Now, get we watched Tremors, screen. the fantastic Fred Ward, <laughs> Kevin Bacon. No, that movie yeah, stands the test of time. Gail and her produce, actually. So that's interesting. I didn't even know that. Yes. Um, so... But when Bruce said to me, what movie would you go with mm. for the first screening on this projector? I said The Goonies. You said The Goonies. And, but and we I, went with Tremors. And I, I immediately vetoed that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys owe me my container for the potato salad. Just oh, a reminder. Yes. I still have the potato salad in the fridge. Okay, that's and something, can I say something to our viewers? Can I say something to the viewers? Can... Can our friend Craig Anderson make potato <laughs> oh, salad? This dude, he puts mustard in it. Uh-huh, He's got uh-huh. an interesting mayonnaise concoction. I'll tell you what. It's I, incredible. There's a movie with Danny Kaye called The Wonder Man, which I absolutely love. It's what where he plays, he plays he identi- a whole bunch of Danny Well, he Kay plays identical up. twins. One's a nightclub performer. One's a massive nerd that works in the library. <laughs> but at one point, he goes out to make potato salad. And he goes to Delicatessen. And it's, and it's like stuck in his head because yeah. secretly he's... Brother's turning into a ghost and getting into his head. But he keeps asking for hot dogs and potato salad. It's the weird food they cook. So now I have this thing where I'm almost like, oh, there's a barbecue and I'll bring some potato <laughs> salad. Like well, Danny Kaye. I did notice how quickly you did say that. Because I said, hey, you, you said, can I bring anything? I yeah. go, oh, Jackie, go, I'll bring a whole bucket of potato salad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. Today's episode, as always, will feature spoilers for both films. So this is your last chance to track them down and watch them before we give away most of the plot points. If other films come up incidentally as we speak, we will do our best not to spoil them. All right, first up. Take one. 
Our first film is Where Eagles Dare from 1968. New York-born Brian Hutton studied at the prestigious Actors Studio and spent his 20s acting in TV serials in Hollywood. Then in his early 30s he began directing and had only directed three and had only directed three films before landing the job as the director of the action epic Where Eagles Dare. The story is set at the height of World War II and sees a high-ranking military mind captured by Nazi forces and held at the top of a mountain fortress that is only accessible by cable car. As a result, a British Special Forces team is assembled and is led up by Major Smith, played by respected acting powerhouse Richard Burton. And don't forget, there's also an American ring-in soldier, played by genre megastar Clint Eastwood. The goal of retrieving the general is simple but the adventures take many twists and turns featuring betrayal, secret identities, double agents, parachuting, cable cars, vehicle chases, and lots and lots of explosions. The film was a big success, ranking number seven in the box office for the year 1969 in England and 13th in the US. Many now consider it one of the best war films ever made and based on my own extensive collection of war VHS tapes, I'd like to say that this is probably the film that most people think of when they think of a war movie. Mm. Herschel, I've got a good suspicion that you read the novel that this was based on. Is that true? I have read the novel. Okay, now what's your take on Where Eagles Dare? Okay, I like where you stop there, Craig, because um, and I don't like look. I don't like to sing my praises very often, but I've got <laughs> a very interesting take on this. What I think. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. Look, for me, this isn't actually a war movie at all. Okay. Because and the reason I say that my mistake. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I say that is because when we think of war movies, you got to take your mind back to the nineteen sixties. If you think of war movies. None of them play out the way this type of movie plays out. Now, we're going to get a chance to talk about the fact that this formula that we're going to see in Where Eagles Dare has, in fact, played out before. Mm -hmm. And it's been a, it's a very successful formula. You're right. I read Where Eagles Dare, but I read a hell of a lot of Alistair MacLean uh, around the age 13, 14. I really got into them. A library had a copy of this book, which yeah. I borrowed, and I, and I remember got an extension on it. And, and we I, should also <laughs> mention that the real famous Alistair MacLean mm. is The Guns of Navarone. Ah. Which was also so that's 1961. Yes, which is also a brilliant film. That's and that a great fact, movie. Yeah. And that's it's interesting. To, it's important, I think, to consider the timing of that because that book ends the 1960s. And what the reason mm. I'm saying it's not a war film is because when you're talking about war films of the time, you're really talking about straight war pictures. So if you look at films like Patton or The Longest Day or something like Doctor Strangelove, which is a satire, ah. but it's about a serious take on war. Or oh, the it's Judgment at Nuremberg. Something also oh, yeah. very. Judgment I mean, at Nuremberg is a good serious one. Serious film. Um, but I, I think the distinction you're making is spot on. Like I 100% agree. Wait, with wait. You. So what would you call so this film? Okay, so this is the great question because when we say war film, we think in genre, right? Yeah. But genre is itself a very complicated topic. So the way I look at it is, when Tarantino talks about Inglorious, which we'll come to later, yeah, and he explicitly aligns it with. Uh, where Eagles Dan Guns of Navarone. In fact, he quotes his movies constantly in his own mm -hmm. oeuvre of, of films. He doesn't call it a war movie. He calls it a men on a mission movie. And I guess yeah. that's the way I would make it. Like, right. I don't and see it as war. Just because you've got the iconography of a war, like it's set in World War II, they're going to parachute in, there's Nazis, there's the Allies, etc. But it's, I guess this for me is the distinction. It's not ostensibly, ostensibly about war. It's about a caper. Yeah, so so that's the yeah. that's in fact 
I'm going to liken it more to a capable war heist movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In fact, so, it could be thought of as a heist movie. Exactly. Because in its essence, they sent there to, to get a guy. To get I guess, right, yeah. When I think of war, I think of 40s films that I've seen, and they're all Abbott and Costello's or Martin and Lewis yeah. and, and other comedies where you see them... The war is the background. They do their stupid hijinks, but it's very patriotic and it's very much, this is a great time, yeah. guys. Get in amongst this. You don't want to miss out on war, otherwise you're a dog. Yes. You know, and, but it's 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 fully, uh, what would you call it, nationalistic? And, yeah, and, yeah. Just, I think nationalistic. And I think if, if you look at the serious war films, one of the things that you see is that they're often about the spectacle and it's about the horror. And, mm. and at this time, they're cautionary tales. They come out of the post- World War Two, but you moved into the Korean War, and you're looking at international mm. struggle, and and these and that are not things. Tale would get amped through Vietnam. Exactly. So yeah. these are not things that you typically have as the backdrop for a fun kind of caper. So what happens here with Where Eagles Dare, which is an extension of things like um, Guns of Navarre and Four Stand from Navarre and those sorts of things, what you get is the use of a backdrop of war. But in using a completely different way, it's 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 something that adds gravitas to it, and it adds spectacle, and the scale of it is enormous. But also, I want to say the period film in Hollywood studios is huge at this point. Like Hollywood is always trying to like make stuff that appears exotic or different, and setting something in the past gives it a sense of gravitas. Exactly as you say, like there's so many of these sorts of movies. Like one that pops to my mind is. Dirty Dozen, right? Or one of my other favorites, The Great Escape. Now, I yeah. could say okay, The Great Escape is like a mm-hmm. war movie, but it's not really a war movie because, like, what do I remember of The Great Escape? Guys tunneling or Steve McQueen going into a cooler. <laughs> I don't remember that this is uh, a, a kind of examination of war. And that's actually my take on this entire thing, mm. right? This movie is a vehicle for fun, for the exhilaration of an action movie. Yeah. It does it extremely well, and it uses the war because people realize that the stakes don't come any higher than war. So why wouldn't you use that yeah. as the ultimate setting, right? And um, it's only 25 years after the end of World War II. So that's like still a so little bit vivid, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, now, I didn't know until preparation for this that, that, that Brian Hutton, who directed this, had, would go on to direct Kelly's Heroes two years later, mm-hmm. which itself was very successful. Mm. Clint and it's Eastwood another vehicle. caper movie. Exactly. And it's really exactly the same thing, yeah. right? Exactly the same formula. This time in Kelly's Heroes... It's a stash of gold. And people who know Three Kings will know that that was Actually, because Three pretty Kings much was a kind of riff yeah. on Kelly's Heroes, right? I mean, Three Kings is a perfect movie in, in this sense because the reason Three Kings got so much attention, I think it was David O. Russell, he hadn't really broken out on the scene, but he was making a movie about the Gulf War, and that was very new in kind of like Hollywood studio content. Like, who was really doing stuff about the Gulf mm-hmm. War? And yet it's still Kelly's Heroes. So it's a bunch of guys going on a caper to find gold, except with the backdrop of the Gulf War. So it was this interesting, you know, synthesis of yeah. the war movie, which Craig introduced, mm-hmm. and the Men on a Mission movie, right? So it brought me to this idea that this formula had been used successfully for quite a period of time now. And in fact, in South Africa, Bruce, we, we, there was a term for it that mum and dad used to use all the yeah. time for a particular type of movie. Now, I'm going to say what it is, and I'm going to get Bruce, you, if you can explain it to our yeah, audience. Yeah, of course. Okay. So the movie but it's category in, sorry, is genre of Afrikaans or Yeah, it's like it's an Afrikaans. Afrikaans right, yeah. right, right, right. Okay, Actually, so, just explain what Afrikaans is. Okay, so Afrikaans is like the – it's like in South Africa – 
when when Bruce and I were young, we were you would speak English and Afrikaans, which was the the sort of the uh, okay. How would you? It's like a, der- a derivation of Dutch, Dutch. Okay, so because uh, we were colonized by the so Dutch. So when Bruce and, I'll and I never forgive the Dutch for what they did to I my don't country. Like <laughs> so when Bruce and I were young, we grew up um, speaking English as a first language, but we also learned Afrikaans, which was a derivation of the Dutch, and really was was viewed as as the language of of white people in South Africa yeah. and colored so people, if you're black white, people really didn't you spoke speak Afrikaans. It. Right. So a term came out of it and really is a combination of different terms and phrases. But um, my dad was 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 commonly heard to use the term <laughs> the Skit, Scorp and Dorna movie. Now yeah. I'm going to throw it to Bruce to explain what that is. Skit is uh, shoot. Scorp is to generally kick. <laughs> and Dorna is to all over kick the shit out of somebody. <laughs> So that's the way we 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 signified the genre, the Skitscope and Dorna, so like and ba- uh, boom crash wallop or something like yeah, yeah, in so, Australian. But I got like it, it like it was a really um, but it's to enjoy the experience as well. It's a no brainer. It was a flexible genre coding because it could be a martial arts movie. So mm-hmm. you could be talking about Bruce Lee, but then you're also talking about Eagles Day and and the action film. Yeah. I think of it as a kind of pure distillation of action. Like, we don't want too much melodrama. We don't want a hell of a lot of dialogue. We're talking <laughs> skid, scoop, and dawny, right? <laughs> exactly. And that yeah. was a really big deal in South Africa. Yeah, right. That was huge. So in the context of this particular skid, scoop, and dawny, which we will see as proven to be successful in many, many iterations, I want to talk about a couple of things. First one, the setting. When you watch Where Eagles Day, I think anybody is going to be surprised at the location shooting of the film. Mm-hmm. The snow backdrop, the way they got some of those shots in the mountains is still staggering. And also some of the plane shots of the mountains and probably helicopter shots as well. But the other thing I want you to filter into that though is in this situation, they get isolated by having to go up this mountain. Mm -hmm. So it's basically do or die, right? Mm -hmm. It's an Agatha Christie limited environment where in Agatha Christie's setting, you've got one person killing everyone else yeah. and you don't know who it is, but there's no running away and that's what generates Mm -hmm. the the constant suspense. In fact, that's an Alastair McLean trope. So Bear right. Island, Isolation Zebra, they're all really the same thing. Exactly. Is, someone is bad amongst us, yeah. and we need to find them because they're going to kill us all. But it's not a whodunit so much as an action movie with a It's the, no different to the slasher being a cool horror film as a whodunit. So if you think of but something like... the action like, film as a right. whodunit. If, if you think of something like The Thing or We've Done Murder on the Orient Express here yeah. mm-hmm. um, on, in our first season, um, these are all examples of using the setting effectively... These are all films that have used um, these limited, isolated settings as the backdrop for generating mm. suspense. Also, can I add one thing? I don't know a movie from this era, late 60s, that does the setting as well as this. So I was completely... I mean, weren't you guys blown away by some of the location stuff? Yeah. Like, how did they get some of the shots? Because well, it's of it hard reminds, to shoot. I'll tell you what reminds me of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, I was going to say that. Which is what, 68, right? Yeah, which is... Okay, so we're in the... Yeah. I bet you they got a lot of the same crew working mm. on these sorts of things. Because I was taken aback by... I'd expect to see heaps more studio shots. Mm. But it's clear that they've made a big deal of this is big studio. If David Lean can do it for the desert in Lawrence of Arabia, we're going to do it for the snow. And so I think so many beautiful is shots. An important point. When they fly in on Her Majesty's yeah. and the helicopter comes in, and you mm-hmm. look at the location, yeah, shooting, and you get these beautiful it's just shots. Really of the fantastic. Exterior. Yeah, they capture that in Where Eagles There. The second thing I want to point out is there's a very unusual MacGuffin 
in all of these films. And I think that's absolutely central to this entire thing. So for our audience at home, the MacGuffin is the thing that you're after. It's the secret that you're pursuing. It's the kind of unknown quantity that you get your audience mm. involved in. Now, Alistair McLean, you put him up there with people like Robert Ludlum, um, mm. the ultimate... And, of course, Hitchcock, right? Hitchcock, so the ultimate MacGuffin ideas. Yeah. In the 80s, it was always a microfilm. Exactly. Um, oh yeah. Okay. In, so in Pulp Fiction, it's the briefcase. The briefcase, yeah, of course. Yeah. That's that's the one that everyone now talks about, right? He's like, "What's yeah. in this briefcase?" And why is everyone hunting for this briefcase? <laughs> now, in this particular context, yeah, can I just say, you know, the, the theory was that the briefcase, were, uh, what was in it, was Marcellus Wallace's soul. Mm-hmm. You that heard that? that? That is it, though. Yeah, but I mean, that's I. I was <laughs> well, metaphoric. Sorry, yes, metaphor, but I th- I yeah, always thought that was kind of hokey when people try and reduce. Yeah, I don't it to, like that. Like, I think it's, like, it's weird. How are you going to fit a soul into a briefcase? That's someone on Reddit. <laughs> That's someone on Reddit that came up with it and then suddenly it's, it's the truth. Now, with this MacGuffin, it's very important in these films, though, that they're incredibly unusual and they're convoluted. So what happens here with Where Eagles There? Where Eagles There is one example of a long line of films that sets you up for this is what they're going to do. This is the purpose of the mission. And by the time you get to the end of the mission, one of two things has happened. Either you can't understand what's actually happened <laughs> which is often the case in Where Eagles Dare, or it's something opposite of what you thought was happening in the first place, which is actually also Where Eagles Dare. Yeah. So the MacGuffin in this case is completely unexpected. And Alistair MacLean became very... People like Jack Higgins as well, but people yeah. like Alistair, Alistair MacLean in, in particular became very famous for being able to come up with these very clever MacGuffins. Yeah. Um, but I know you're going to do the parlor scene later, but this MacGuffin is the most ridiculous of them all, yeah. right? So I'm not going to say what it is because I'm just going to explain it later. But this whole idea that it's not enough just to go in, you know, a bunch of guys on a mission to go get a guy. When mm. we get there, we're going to turn into the most convoluted, crazy fiction you've ever heard in your life. And that was so Alistair And there's a, there's a part of me that loves the fact that... Um, I, Im- I imagine the group of scriptwriters sitting around a table, like we're sitting around a table currently, and they're going, um, I don't understand what's going on. And they're going, well, well Alistair McLean, the author of the book, wrote the script, so we're just going to do it. It doesn't matter. One of the best bits is, in my mind is, they because this is the thing in film when you write or, or TV, when you've got a plot hole, you have a character pointed out early on so that it's excused. And this happens here because they go, why don't we just blow up the whole thing then? <laughs> There's a whole bunch of Nazis yes. up there and our guy, let's just get rid of them all. And then yeah. someone goes, this is why we can't do that. Yeah. And then it's, you don't think about it again yeah. as a logical thing. Is That's just what they should do yes. here. What the hell's going on? It's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie where if you're interested just in the acting, mm. remember the guy stands and he goes, oh, excuse me, sir. <laughs> but what the bloody hell is this about? <laughs> Go, Whoa, that, that, that is one of the most ridiculous moments. Because it's like, what is this guy doing? And you know what I, yeah. I love about it? He's when got they, like two lines in the movie, and that's one of them. But you know what I love about when the general explains what it's all about? Mm. And then the camera goes back to him and he goes, sorry, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's sad. I know. Okay, so the final thing I want to say is that the other thing you need, and all of these movies show it, is you need two charismatic leads. You need the star power to drive this entire thing. So if we mm. go further back to Guns and Avron, we've got David Niven, we've got Gregory, um, Gregory Peck. Peck, got a, a fantastic cast there, but really yeah. led by those two people. And in fact, interestingly, Gregory Peck in Guns is American, and David Niven is the upper class British. Mm-hmm. Come forward to a very successful um, novel and movie, Hunt for Red October. You've got Sean Connery, mm. you've got Alec Baldwin. Um, you need the two people driving the charisma, the interest, 
there's direct mission, and you've got the MacGuffin and the setting. So all in all, what happens if you do it well, like it's been done in Wagles, and I haven't mentioned music or I haven't mentioned a couple of things about it that are really fantastic also. But if you put this together, you've got an abs- you've got a thrill a minute mm. kind of ride. I think one thing we've got to mention, though, is that I reckon this movie takes action to another level. Like, did we see anything? Take James Bond through mm. the 60s. Is there anything that matches the cable car scene? Um, there's a brilliant cable car scene in Honor Majesties, which is a year before. Mm. But I just don't remember it having the same no. dramatic exteriors that you see in this cable car scene and the level of action. Because I read somewhere that there was a massive uh, injury on the cable car jump in this yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. The stunt, the stunt uh, he guy. He broke his back or something, ju- uh, Smashed two, most of his front teeth out when he landed, Whoa. when he jumped between the two. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, when you they, watch that scene, it's, it's a... It's really I don't know how they right? got it because no, um, it, you can actually see the drop or yep. and, and mm. you can see a part of the drop. Now, obviously, they're done with, uh, I guess, surfaces or ledges or something. But it's genuinely yeah. dangerous, that stunt. And, you're and I think all. this is an interesting thing to steer, to steer listeners to. When you watch it, this is obviously prior to anything digital, but it's also in an era where I think studios were trying to reinvest in location, right? Locations had become a really big deal, mm. especially for serious-minded cinema. So I think they tried to do a lot of physical action. And I don't know another movie from the late 60s that had this level of just physical action from the leads where you'd show a few wide shots of them and maybe it'd be a stunt guy, right? But you still got them standing on something or jumping. And that was pretty cool. Well, that's Eastwood as well. I remember, like, uh, he, didn't, he, he didn't want to do too much dialogue because he wasn't keen on yeah. it. Um, and so he ended up saying, I want to be the action yes. guy. Yeah, and so he does a lot cover of, the dialogue. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So he, he does a lot of the action. But he's got such a history of action at that yeah. point. Like I reckon that was really a smart move from not only him but yeah. the studio because yeah. this guy, firstly, he looks athletic. Richard Burton doesn't look athletic, <laughs> right? P- plus, Richard Burton's drinking a bottle of vodka a day on set, mm. which is formally documented. <laughs> I, I read four bottles a day. Four, okay, so so either way, the dude is incoherent <laughs> when they call action, mm. which is actually quite famous because it annoyed a lot of people on set because he couldn't say his lines because he was drunk. Wow. That's a true story. Um, you know, and so you've got Clint Eastwood on the other end who's physical, who's laconic, who's that kind of cool American bit of a cowboy just come off Sergio mm. Leone. It's, and he brings a, a bit of that persona into the Dirty Harry, which is just oh, at totally. the start of the so next decade. Dirty Harry is just about to, you know... In fact, that's a really good point, because that line from the... I think it's such name. a tremendous pairing of these two, because Burton is such a highfalutin, yeah. fancy gravitas, and yes. then Eastwood's such a cool dude, like... Even and I reckon even the hair, like he, yeah. Eastwood is so cool in this. And I will say what I like about Burton, though, is um, he's suave in his own way. He really commands everything. And when he does his big lines in Your Mise en Scene, when he has those big lines, you, I find myself compelled to listen to him uh, I, because it's like he's holding yeah, the room. Yeah. I you think know? he's genuinely a very good actor. Yeah. Like we can't forget like all the stuff that guy's been in. He's done. Yeah. He is a very very good actor, yes. right? So well, he, they they when did they do Who's Afraid of, of Virginia Woolf? I think it was, I think it was a little bit before though. It was, it was earlier, right? Yeah. But yeah. I look at this guy. But I mean, that's just Burton's a done a brilliant. lot. Of I think that's stuff. like sixty six, which um, is only two years earlier. I yeah. also want to say to our audience that I want them to make up their mind because in some of my research, I came across. Um, a Michael Kosselnook of the Winnipeg Free Press. And this was a, a, actually a primary source that I came across online. Um, he wrote a review at the time called Burton Eastwood Film, Mission Unwatchable. 
Now wow. I really enjoyed this movie, what? but there were some reviews what was at his the re- time. His reason for it being unwatchable? He said it was ridiculous. He said Burton and Eastwood were a terrible pairing, and that surprised me because I thought they were one of the strengths. What, of the what movie. motivates that kind of thinking? As a, as a, I guess as a contrast to that, um, in my research, I also read that Steven Spielberg uh, has called it his favorite World War II film. Mm. So it does divide people, but I think most people now... It's a direct inspiration for Schindler's List. No, it's just just a joke. (laughs) Unbelievable comedy coming out of nowhere on the podcast. (laughs) All right, move on to our second film. Take two. Our second film is 2009's Inglorious Bastards. American author and golden boy of self-referential indie cinema, Quentin Tarantino had directed seven feature films of various genres before he wrote and directed this adventure war epic. His preceding film was a throwback to grindhouse cinema The deliberately trashy Death Proof had a budget of $30 million, but for his new film, the budget shot up to $70 million. Set in Nazi-occupied Paris, it's the story of a Jewish projectionist, Shoshana, Played by Melanie Laurent. Is that a, mm, yeah, I got yeah. that right? Who is forced to host a large scale propaganda screening at her cinema. Joseph Goebbels, Adolf Hitler, and the heroic soldier at the center of the movie, who also has a strong attraction to her, will be in attendance. So she decides to lock them all in the building and burn them to the ground. To complicate matters, the Nazi hunter who murdered her family, played by Oscar winner Christoph Waltz, is on security detail for the event. And at the same time, a ragtag band of allied soldiers also attempt to infiltrate the event and kill all of the Nazis. The story culminates with the allied soldiers and the cinema owner unleashing havoc at the event and everyone is killed including Adolf Hitler. The film features a strong international cast led by American movie star Brad Pitt. It was a huge hit at the box office, taking in $320 million worldwide and features many music cues from obscure world cinema, a lot of it by Anino Morricone. Bruce, this is the first time we've done a Tarantino film. All the pressure, baby! (laughs) A Tarantino film on the podcast. So what's your take on Inglorious Bustards. I'm really excited to do Tarantino. I, I've the interesting thing is my first encounter with thinking about Tarantino in a series. So all of us saw Pulp Fiction when I was at. Mm-hmm. That was a big deal because Pulp Fiction came out when we were 18, so we could just go to the movies and see it because you had to be 18 to get into yeah. see Pulp Fiction. And like I don't know what you guys think, but for me, for many years after that, it was as if Tarantino was the coolest <laughs> filmmaker in the world. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, he made, you know, he did Jackie Brown, for example. He did the Kill Bill films. He did the Grindhouse movies. When Inglourious comes out, he's so big that a movie that's ostensibly art house and strange and kind of excessive, even though it's a men on a mission movie, makes 300 million. So I'm so fascinated by Inglourious and why this spoke to the whole global culture at the time. It's really controversial. It's incredibly in your face. It's violent. Um, it's it's exploitative. It's kind mm-hmm. of exploitation cinema meets a weird politics. And I'm, I guess I'm fascinated by what this movie represents. Watching it again for this podcast episode, I was taken aback by just the level of virtuosity 
and creativity in every frame of the movie. Like, I was just marveling at it. I mean, is that, uh, where do you guys sit with watching it? Like, are you impressed by it? Because these days, it's become uncool to say you love Tarantino. Look, I, I, I love it in the sense that you're describing. So, mm. for example, I remember watching it. I've seen it before, okay? So I yeah. remember watching it again, and I called Bruce up after probably, I don't know, a third of the way through, and I said, look, I've just timed, or I checked the first scene. It's like 21 minutes, 20 and a half minutes of the first scene, which really is a prologue to the entire thing, mm -hmm. right? And if you think <laughs> about it... You, wa you watch most movies with a stopwatch? Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I've got my thing going, and I pause oh, it, and I go, right. 20, He gets his clicker, minutes. he's clicking it every... He's taking average shot lenses as well. He takes it down to the oval to watch. <laughs> but no, this isn't a three-hour and 20-minute movie. This, yeah. this, this, is a, this is a two and a half hour movie yes but 21 minutes of it is in is just in that prologue yes. and the once upon a time we should say in mm. Vichy exactly right yeah. so I guess I love the creativity of it the wonder of some of the scenes I love the basement scene the shoot up in the basement I love so much of it I don't love the narrative as much as I do in some of Tarantino mm. so if you would say to me what's my favorite Tarantino stuff I absolutely love once upon a time in Hollywood I love Jackie Brown I love Pulp Fiction but for me, those films have got an edge in the narrative that I don't think Inglorious has got. Mm. So I love it in one sense, but I don't think it's... For, and I, you know, I've said this to both of you before. For me, it, it's not absolutely top-tier yeah. Tarantino. Because when Herschel, when I was talking about the phone, Herschel said to me, like, I think your sense, Herschel, is there's so much creativity on display. This is like, there's so much ingenuity. But your feeling is it doesn't hang together dramatically or maybe even emotionally. In terms of the ride you go on as a spectator. Well, I mean, I think, I think the second point you make, the, the emotional part, I think is an interesting thing because we are, we are kept at arm's length. I think Tarantino does this intentionally because it's a mission movie. But we are, in fact, kept at arm's length from almost all of the characters except for Shoshana. Mm. But I do think a hell of a lot of the Shoshana story with her boyfriend, and that's a complicated thing in itself because she's got a black boyfriend mm. and it's Nazi Germany-occupied... Yeah. Paris, I think a hell of a lot of that was left on the cutting room floor. And I well, said this to you straight up. Yeah, it's fa this movie is famous for uh, Tarantino, you know, he's, he's quite a an overt sort of a character. And he was talking about this movie for, for years before it was made. And he would often say this was going to be his masterpiece. But apparently he just kept writing and writing and it got bigger and bigger. So, like, I think the story in its kind of, you know, uh, um, first form when all the ideas came together and he had put it into a single narrative was huge unfilmable well that's what happened with Kill Bill 1 and, and 2 that's right, right? He, spot, like, he split it to 2 Yeah. I don't think the studio wanted that for this they wanted a standalone film and I do think he takes things out the, the relationship between Shoshana and her boyfriend I agree is a bit odd because you know if you just think about character motivation she in fact asks him to kill himself mm. and kill her in the cinema with the Nazis. And the only emotion that's an awfully big thing to ask somebody. The only to emotion do. we see attached to that is there's this recognition. And she's she's wonderful in this movie. Yeah. From start to finish, she's absolutely fantastic. She breaks down. But he hardly it's it's a, you can tell they've talked about this for a long time. Yeah. We just haven't been privy to the conversation. And I also sense there's probably a lot of trauma in his past. Mm -hmm. So we've seen and her again, trauma, we're not, if which is really case. like strong, right? Remember the scene where they're eating the strudel, yeah. where Hans meets her again after all these years. It's like three, four years later. And remember, he's eating, he's eating, and then gets him and walks away. And there's this beautiful shot on her where she just loses her resolve yeah. and yep. begins to like 
it's almost like she's having a panic attack. Yeah, I love that. It's yeah. just amazing, right? Yeah. So can you, so we take that with us in terms of such an emotionally intense relationship to Shoshana, but we don't have that with the boyfriend. So when she asks him to do this, I always feel, I agree, I feel that's underdone because I don't know what he's doing, mm-hmm. right? But ironically, the, the, the character that I'm probably emotionally closest to is Christoph Waltz. Um, when he jumps out of his seat, and I don't mean emotionally close in that I want him to succeed, yeah. but you feel he's the most about, um, realized, maybe. And, and I think he's the most well-written of the characters. Yeah. So, for example, <laughs> when, um, when, the, when the German actress, uh, Christian von Hammersmark, what's, what's her Bridget. name? Bridget. Bridget von, von Hammersmark, yeah. When, when Christoph Walsh catches her in the lie, mm. and then she says, um, what now? And when Waltz jumps up and chokes mm. her, that to me was genuinely terrifying. That's one of the most terrifying things I've seen in, in film in a long, mm. long time. But it's also a statement of his emotional, like psych- psychotic well, nature. I mean, I find Lander a, a truly terrifying character, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Tarantino sets that up. He makes th- this is the like the ultimate evil that we're seeing here. Um, so I, I mean, I probably have a slightly different relationship. I. Um, I find it a slightly more playful postmodern type of film. So I think Tarantino is deliberately making this like uber meta commentary on the Men on a Mission movie. Mm-hmm. So he's going to do his own Man on a Mission in World War II. And he's going to set it up, but every sequence is going to have this tongue-in-cheek, I know what I'm doing, we're all in on a gag. So, <laughs> for example, one of my favorite scenes, and probably one of the funniest scenes in the film, is when uh, Michael Fassbender gets enlisted <laughs> as a, like one of Britain's leading movie critics and the yeah. author of two books. <laughs> I was thinking of you on that. I was <laughs> like, I bet, I bet you love that guy. I loved it. So especially when he's going, and you've written for this journal, this journal, and you've also got two books published. Yeah. I think it's very impressive. And I was thinking, whoa, he's like describing me. <laughs> I could go on one of these missions. <laughs> and then he's um, also talking to Austin Powers. <laughs> well, so again, do, okay, is that deliberate? Like, what the hell is Tarantino doing? Why is Mike Myers playing this stiff upper British, upper lip British guy? And there's a scene where he says, blow up, what is it? Put in the bomb, blow up the bomb, and go on, uh, bye bye Nazis. And then he looks almost down the barrel <laughs> so of the camera that's, as if it's off. So that's off the point the I would make. He looks, he looks at the camera, and it's only <laughs> because we're at a bit of a distance. Of it's a lo- it's a big ballroom, mm. and it's only because we're at a bit of a distance that you can't tell that he's looking directly into the camera. But yeah. if you put him up close, he's sta- it's <laughs> it's an Austin Powers scene, and it has to be deliberate. It has so to be. okay, what do we lose in? Inglorious being a kind of explicit commentary on where Eagles Dare, right? This is Tarantino going, I love these movies. This is homage, but it's also me taking that and totally reconstructing but, it. But it's also but it's got something else to it as well that is miles away from where Eagles Dare or from the other films we talked about. And it's that tongue in cheek quality. Yeah. Aspects of it is a comedy. You know, Goliami, what's, what's, what's Gorilami. Gorilami, yeah. Gorilami. Aspects of it is fast. <laughs> it's absolute yes. fast. When Christoph Waltz laughs because von Hammerschlag has. When von Hammerschlag says, I've climbed, I, I broke my leg climbing the mountain. He doesn't just chuckle, he turns around and walks about five meters back toward the table, and it's like he's slapping his knees, <laughs> laughing that hard. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha!
So, so, but I love it because it's. Sort I know, of, so do I. It's 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 over the top. Yes. Because you know he's about. To, he's so angry. And I think so they're too. I think that is so Tarant Tarantino. Um, it's why I love Tarantino. It's why I love the Brian De Palmas or the Hitchcocks. Is that sometimes there are these unhinged moments, and I like when he's pushing the level of, well. He shouldn't really be doing this because it draws so much attention. To, if he's laughing excessively, but it's also like but I love remember that. De Niro and Cape Fear. Awesome. When this is Max exactly Cady's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like I thought. You know, remember when in in Cape Fear, De Niro's losing his brain laughing, watching the problem, watching child. problem child, <laughs> and it's and you remember John Ritter comes walking in and goes. He loved me all the time. And it's so absurd. And I get it. It's not Tarantino. Because Tarantino wants to make this explicit. Yeah. But the pleasure I take, because that's, as you say, Sean, that's the whole movie. Like when he introduces Stiglitz and you get this heavy metal kind of... <laughs> the first time I saw that, I was just, what? What's he doing? I, I but, take but what now, both of you are saying. Yeah. I, I completely understand what both of you are saying. Where I want to draw a, a contrast or distinction is one of my favorite movies, obviously, Pulp Fiction. When I think of Vincent and and um, and Jules and some of the dialogue they've got, mm. that, that, that's cry with laughter kind of dialogue, yeah. right? Mm. But when I think you come across to Uma Thurma and you come across to Butch, these are people in the throes of trauma and emotion. In Inglorious, for me, it spends most of its time as having a bit of fun. Mm. And well, that I don't understand I, don't, with don't Shoshana. Don't you think it gets to some... Okay, take when Max, who's, who's become a father... And I want to say, a voller... I think is wonderful. Oh yeah, so he's also. We feel very. I mean, I don't. What did you guys feel about the death scene of the two of them? Uh, this is uh, um, in the bar downstairs. No, no, no. So okay, first I want to say I felt very connected to Max, who's just become a father that yeah. night, and they're all going to lose their lives. And when Bridget von Hunsmark just turns around and shoots him yeah. like five times point blank, you know, from laying on the floor, yeah. that that to me is a really brutal moment, right? So I actually felt. Con- I also felt connected to Fassbender, knowing that you know, you're going to die now. Mm. And when he says, you know, well, then I'll go out speaking the kings. Yeah. I honestly thought at that moment, how does Tarantino have this level of referentiality to draw on? Because that idea of speaking the kings, you know, the king's English, Yeah. that's just um, the, the expansiveness. But also of the way Fassbender does it and as the, well. Yeah, and Fassbender I mean, doing that role. Mm. When Shoshana su- shoots Zola, and we, you know, and, and, and it's so kind of almost banal. He just gets shot and he dies. Mm. And she doesn't care, right? She has no interest in this guy because for her, he's just a Nazi. Well, remember, but what Tarantino's yeah. done to us through a sleight of hand is we care as much about him as we seem to care about her because he's so innocent. You know, he's so pure in the way he's been manipulated by Goebbels. And wow, when he turns and shoots her, mm. and we go into full Sergio Leone homage, mm. you know, with the Morricone score, the super slow motion, we even get that puff of red of a dress that goes up. I remember being in the movies, and I was almost breathless with how beautiful the sequence was. I, I remember vividly that, again. Mo- that moment, just so overwhelming, mm. was kind of the aesthetic beauty of and, it. And like... You know, like I was saying before, when when Lander jumps up and kills Von Hammerschmark and, yeah. and Shoshana and 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 Zola, these are beautiful scenes. Mm. For me, it's the link between the whole thing. It's the that entire tapestry it. of it that doesn't quite hold yeah. together. Um, is you know, Eagles Day 
is based on a novel by Alistair MacLean and he wrote the screenplay. So for me, there's a trajectory that yeah. was built over a long period of time. I think, Herschel, you hit on something that's just so fundamental to Hollywood. It's always a tension, I feel, in the filmmakers who try to be experimental and innovative within the studio system. So Tarantino knows this movie costs $70 million. Brad Pitt's taking at least 25 to 30 of that 70. He knows he's got to make back at least 200. <laughs> Go crazy. So, no, no, no. No, I was just making a comment. Ah, okay. a he, psst. <laughs> I was pissed off. Go on. So Brad Pitt's making 25 to 30 of the 70. Psst. Tar- <laughs> <laughs> and Tarantino needs to make back at least 200. So the fact that I made like, over 300 is, hey, that's grateful. Yeah. Max, congratulations to them. I find it interesting that... I think the tension is between like classical continuity, which is narrative that has a real chain that links beautifully together. You feel the character arcs with a Quentin Tarantino who sees the film form, I think, quite differently. It's true that I think Pulp Fiction has a stronger threat, as does Reservoir Dogs, but the more he gets more experimental, the more he pulls some of that stuff out. And in Inglourious, for example, you get that stunning 20 minutes, which I'll do in mise-en-scene, where Shoshana runs out and she escapes, you know, and he says, au revoir, Shoshana. And do you remember where you cut to directly from that? What's like the next image you get? It's like Brad Pitt going, and, you know, such a break. Like, And we've skipped three years as well. So we go 1941, 1944, and it's Brad Pitt. And what did what does this have to do with the 20 minutes we just watched? Well, that takes quite a while to materialize. So it's almost as if Tarantino's going, I'm sorry, I'm not going to make this perfectly continuous for you. I'm not going to set up a classical narrative form. You're going to have to let me jump. And that's what he does. you know. And, and it's how you, how you work with that. Okay, well, I think we should start moving on to our mise-en-scenes. Mise-en-scene. Now it's time for our mise-en-scene, where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Herschel. What have you chosen for us from Where Eagles Dare? Amidst so many scenes set in the snow and the beautiful location shooting that we've talked about previously, I've chosen to go for something completely different. I'm going to go for, you know, if we were talking about murder mystery movies on Agatha Christie vehicle, lives out, one of these things, we would say that I'm going to go for the, the, the denouement of the movie where Richard Burton explains to a raptured dining table of Nazis and Clint Eastwood what exactly is happening in this convoluted film. I love this scene. <laughs> and it's funny that you call it the denouement <laughs> because it is the denouement scene, but it's about an hour early. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, we're doing it now. It also goes on for quite a while. I know, it also goes for an hour. So that <laughs> it's makes it's up an interesting it. thing. It's also, I mean, much like they drop the characters into the middle of the Schloss Adler, it's thrown into the film <laughs> as, I think, an opportunity for the audience to get its breath back because yeah. it's mm. just chase sequences and shooting and craziness. That's an and excellent point because good. I think it does give you a bit of, like, like relief. It's a bit of a respite. Yeah, a respite, I think it yeah. is really important. Because the, the action is so intense and unrelenting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like yeah. a train and then we've pulled into a stop yeah. and we've just gone, what? Yeah. And, like, I remember getting to that moment and just going, hang on, what's happening? <laughs> like, I not because I was confused by the plot, but just the rhythms. I was like, yeah. oh, we've really just put the brakes on and we're yes. having this whole dramatic scene. I remember scene. thinking, could you, do that? could you do that in an action movie now? Oh, like man. if you did an action movie now, could you just go, you know what, we're going to st- stop here for about 25 minutes and like, really explore <laughs> okay. the dialogue. Well, well, and this is already a very long, this is a long film, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So 
I think what happens is you, you get the producers on board and the, the people who make the money decisions, and they're going to say, you know, we can lose like 20 minutes of that. That is yeah. a long, drawn-out sequence. What I want to say here is that, and I think some of our listeners might find this a little bit annoying, but I actually love how little sense this scene makes. <laughs> <laughs> it makes almost no sense whatsoever. And if you, actually, if you watch it and you pick it apart... Um, I think it makes no sense, really. Can, yeah. can I say one thing that I, I forgot to mention earlier that makes no sense? Everyone uses a British accent, except Clint Eastwood, who uses an American. <laughs> but there's no differentiation as to what side they're on, because they're like... Who are you? If I might have some explanation. In good time, Colonel. What and, side and did you, I, did that you, was, yeah, that I was like a, a standard trope of studio yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially even if you were American, in some studio movies, if you got into these movies, you'd put in a British accent anyway. <laughs> but but <laughs> adding to that weirdness, do you guys remember when they set up at the beginning and they say, you've all been chosen for a mission from which you may not return. Mm. You all speak fluent German. Yeah. From that point on, um, everyone speaks in a British accent, except Clint Eastwood who speaks in an American <laughs> yeah. accent, but they all speak fluent yeah, but German. Presumably they speak in German. Yeah, exactly. Right? But, but, that's, that's, yeah. The, but that's another interesting question in comparison with Inglorious. But you know where the accents becomes a big deal? Yes. Is that a riff of, of having no accents or silly accents yeah. or German accents, English accents and American accents? All in speaking fluent German. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's kind of funny. I, I actually, that's one of my favorite things in Inglorious, which I thought was so clever. When Fassbender gives, gives themselves, gives the group away by um, ordering three uh, mm -hmm. glasses, but he puts up the wrong fingers. A question might be: Well, why doesn't it matter that the story doesn't make sense? Why doesn't it matter that this final reveal? Doesn't make any sense. Really, it doesn't make sense because it's so improbable the way this is unfolding in that parlor room. Well, I think it's kind of like... Because uh, I don't understand why a thousand Nazis are <laughs> rushing in. Well, remember when they asked Raymond Chandler, oh, who, who's the killer in the big sleep? And he said, I really don't know. <laughs> no, it's, it's that, that kind yeah. of... Because it's, it's, it's sleight of hand. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, you know, the, the smoke in the mirrors is as important as anything else. Oh, in this yeah. case, I'd say it's more important. And it's also part of the fun. So I'm going to run through a few of the things that go into the scene. So I want you know, our listeners at home to picture people sitting around this large dining table. <laughs> Richard Burton... He's now taking stage, and he takes stage as he, as though he's on a stage in a play. Yeah. He really does. I think that's so deliberate. Mm. Okay, we've got the names of spies in a book. A high-ranking <laughs> German official who's based in Italy is called to verify the identity of Richard Burton. Somehow, it all works. Burton's got his three own people who are double agents. They're under the pump in the interrogation. They are claiming that they're Germans. Burton's claiming they're English, and he's the German. Yeah. I mean, it's so convoluted, but so brilliant, right? In less than 10 minutes, he convinces the Nazi <laughs> high command that his implausible story is in fact correct, and the entire plot, all the steps of the plot, is exactly as it was planned back, way back, in the room where it's apparently yeah. they devised it all. Now, this really <laughs> goes back to some very serious work that John le Carre did. John le Carre set up things, but in a very clinical sense. Mm. Where wait, wait, wait. In the John le Carre didn't write this. No, no, no. no. What no. I'm saying is, so if you look at Spy Who <laughs> Came In From The Coal, yeah. he set up a very convoluted say, that's piece. That's a great reference, because the trope of the double agent, who's not really a double agent, but in fact a triple agent, mm. East Spy came in from the coal. Yes. Remember but that, that incredible but that, policy? But that's that? done with a degree Novel. of realism and accuracy yes. that this movie is not interested in. Yeah. So throw into this mix, Richard Burton parading out the front, and we get a number of close-ups of Clint Eastwood, who is becoming increasingly confused <laughs> by what is the truth, what is not the truth, and that becomes a key part of this entire scene. The only difference 
is when an SS officer, played by a Darren Nesbitt in my research, he enters the room and he questions what's going on. Now, the audience at this point is questioning what's going on as well, but <laughs> yeah. Nesbitt questions and it so is as an external. Eastwood doesn't know what's Eastwood going on. Eastwood doesn't either. understand at all what's going on. Um, now, on a side note, and I just want to say, you reminded me of the SS officer in Inglorious. Yeah. Because it's the, it's the one addition to the fray that undoes everything. Yeah. And I thought that was quite an interesting comparison as well. I chose this scene because we've, const- we've deconstructed similar scenes. We've looked at Knives Out, we've looked at Murder in the Orient Express, and we looked at scenes of complexity. But there the, the writer or the creator has a role to play in ensuring that all the loose ends are tied up. Like, who the killer is that needs to make sense. Yeah, what's, I think, wonderful about this is we're not assist on the detail. Yeah, we just sit back and we kind of laugh at the implausibility of what is happening in this room. Who were the three double agents? We don't know because we don't even remember what they were at the start of the movie. Yeah. Richard Burton, he is saying he's German, but we know him to be English. Um, Clint well, Eastwood is American. There, where you do start thinking, wait a second, is he actually German? Mm. Like I remember whenever I watch it, I think, okay, if you're watching this for the first time, is Richard Burton actually the double? Easy or not? But see, at that point, it's impossible to... You have nothing to hang on to as to what <laughs> is true in yeah. this film at that point. And the only time it shifts is where we kind of get a one-on-one where Clint Eastwood says, um, I don't know, I'm completely confused myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's a gesture. And then at the end, we follow... It's only the point of view, really, following Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood that tells us oh, these are the good people. Um, the other thing that uh, when you look at uh, how the story ends, that whole scene, they just shot everyone anyway. <laughs> like at the end of it, it was like, just shoot everyone. And the only thing that they did learn was that the big guy, the big boss that they rescued. That's the name they that's wanted. That's the name. Right? And that's yeah. the well, no, only that's not useful. Just the name. Don't remember. They, they needed the names that the other three double agents wrote down in the book because they were all the yeah. contacts in London. But that included the guy. That included. And that was, yeah. that, was the, that was the interesting So thing. in fact, that's the whole sting. That's it's, the like one, it's like a big, big sting. That's the the MacGuffin. Yeah, right. Is that little notebook? Yeah, <laughs> that that's yeah. the irony of it. It's not about rescuing a person who knows the D-Day landing details. Because he's like, that. like from memory, he's just an actor. He's a theatre actor. Yeah, he's a theatre actor. Cartwright. Yeah. Cartwright. I think his name is Cartwright. Um, so, Eastwood does sum it up best in the film when they come out of the situation and he says, "Major," he says this to Richard Burton, "Major, you got me as confused as I'll ever be." And in fact, that's what happens to the audience. But what happens as soon as he says that? They pick up their guns, they shoot everyone dead, and they blow the place to smithereens yeah. before getting cable cars down the mountain in another tour de force and concluding a third act, which is probably one of the best third acts in any of these films. And that's why yeah. I love that scene. And you got mm. that awesome conclusion to the movie. I love, didn't you find it like haunting when the guy just jumps out of the plane? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the va- and, and they don't actually show it. No, they, they don't, don't show, show it. it. So that's very and, and you know, the camera kind of moves away onto Burton's face, I think, and then it comes back and he's gone. And so, it's like a really powerful scene. So for me, if you take your Agatha Christie's and what's been made famous many times, even for people who love a horror, the thing when they're all sitting there and they're testing their blood, it's the same structure. It's exactly the same structure. The difference here being that I assume with Alastair McLean as the writer of the of the screenplay, so with Alastair McLean's permission. They made it completely implausible, impossible <laughs> to follow, mm. and just run along with it for the fun of it. And that's why I, I really I mean, And in some scene. ways, that's what I was trying to get at with Inglourious, right? That's why I love Tarantino so much, because he made it okay, again, to have a bit of fun with a war movie. 
Because, like, you think about where the war movie goes after Where Eagles There. You go into the, you know, Where Eagles There is made smack bang in the middle of Vietnam. We go into the great time of the Vietnam War film. Realism takes over in America through the 1970s. And that whole moment of the great caper, the great heist, the men on a mission, no one really does it as, as yeah. well because it would be shameful to do it. And that's why the It's really only so Tarantino who can get away with everything glorious because of his deal with Miramax. All right. I, I mean, I love the scene. I feel like um, I don't know what the hell goes on, but by the end <laughs> I get it and I feel emotionally yeah. happy and I'm like, yep, keep moving, guys. And the contrast of Burton versus Eastwood is just great. You've got the steely masculinity of Eastwood sitting there, increasingly confused. You've got Burton holding court like he's, mm. he's Shakespeare. It's a Shakespearean he's, performance. That's exactly what yeah. I think it but is. But another actually. great moment is when he produces his booklet and it's got nothing in it. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. But it's like, a, but you know, you got to say magician. You don't yes. go, why? Yeah. You just go, wow. So you know, much you sleight of hand, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and McLean was so excellent with that because that, that's in many Alistair McLean yeah. novels. All right, let's move on to our second mise en scene. Mise en scène. Bruce, what have you got for us from uh, Inglorious Bastards? So I'm going to do the scene that Tarantino, I think even today, regards as his greatest sequence, mm-hmm. which is the opening sequence. Now, I'm not going to talk about the whole 20 minutes, but I guess I want to say that this sequence, which is the opening 20 minutes, it's the once upon a time in Nazi-occupied France, where we meet the Lapadet family, uh, and when we meet Hans Lander for the first time, is uh, the sequence when I was at the cinema watching this in 2009, I was just overwhelmed by the intensity of it. Mm. But also, I want to say, the beauty of it. So the sequence is both like, very precise in the way it's designed, the way it's photographed, and the performances, and the way that it builds a narrative. And it's at every moment, uh, extremely referential. So I want to say that this sequence is an explicit homage and and a kind of series of quotations of a sequence in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, which was released in 1967, so if, or 68, sorry. So if you think about it, we've just done Where Eagles Dare, we've talked about Guns of Navarone, and we talked about the 60s mm. as being this incredible time of genre. At the same time that those great movies were taking place in the studio system, Sir Giulione was an Italian filmmaker who was making these lower-budget, what were called spaghetti westerns. And an interesting point of contact is that Clint Eastwood starred in what was called the Man With No Name trilogy, which is Fistful of Dollars, Few Dollars More, Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But the film that Tarantino wants to almost uh, like reanimate for Inglorious is Leone's just incredible masterpiece of 1968 called Once Upon a Time in the West, which is bordering on a three-hour epic that is an attempt to mythologize the whole Western genre. So the point of contact is Tarantino's not trying to make a war movie. He's trying to make a movie that is riffing on a whole bunch of genres that have predated it and a whole bunch of movies. So even when he puts up Once Upon a Time in Nazi-occupied France, if you know Leone and you know Once Upon a Time in the West, you know that that opening wide shot is pretty much the same framing, the same positioning as the wide shot of the family's homestead where the villain, played by Henry Fonda, is going to walk up with his 
you know, his henchmen, yeah. and they're going to kill everyone. And you can certainly see so comparisons. So it's, it's like it's such a... Because you've got Landa bringing his men. I was going to say, yeah. you, can, you can make comparisons between Landa and Henry Fonda yeah. in that, because they both turn up innocuous. Yep. Henry Fonda with his blue eyes speaking to the child. Yes. Landa arrives, you know, um, being all kind and polite and, yep. and the manners of the, the mm. bourgeois sort of yep. thing. And yet, what is behind that facade is like pure horror that both <laughs> and, of them and, are. And I think this is a key point, right? Neither Leone nor Tarantino have any interest in realism, like at all. So Leone was coming through cinema in the early 60s. The people, you know, he was part of that whole explosion of genre in Italy. We talked about the giallo, of, you know, a few shows ago. Tarantino's no different. Tarantino is a thoroughly genre filmmaker. And in fact, I remember when I was doing research on Pulp Fiction and Tarantino for my PhD, this is now many years ago, one of the quotes that was a way into Tarantino's mind for me was when he claimed that every film was a genre film. Like, he claimed wow. every movie was a genre movie. And anybody who didn't wish to acknowledge that was kind of snobbish, mm-hmm. right? We just wanted, you know, like people who turn their noses up at, at genre films. So as, as someone who has collected 10,000 videotapes <laughs> and put them into genres, yes. I agree. You're sympathetic there, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I'm very sympathetic. I mean, the, the only one that falls short of being is drama, which yeah. often is like, I don't know, put it in yep. there. So it has everything from <laughs> yeah. indie mumblecore films to, um, you know. Big and it was always loose, right? So you yeah. go to like, um, you go to Blockbuster and dramas, everything from Rain Man to When Harry Met yeah, Sally. Oscar Because you wouldn't put that in comedy, the, you know. Yeah, so. it's just stuff people didn't know how to fit. And I always think of it as kind of the place where you'd also find some bad movies where they yeah. just didn't know what they were. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, no. And so I suppose this is where Tarantino is not apologizing for being a genre filmmaker, but he doesn't see himself as just a genre maker. Genre filmmaker, he sees himself in the tradition of exploitation cinema. So in one in one sense, he's riffing on Sergio Leone. He's also riffing on like the Nazi war movie, the Caper movie that we've just talked about with Where Eagles Dare. But I don't think this guy, you know, some critics are tough on Tarantino, and especially critics, heaps of my film students who think it's uncool to like Tarantino will say, oh, he's like Brian De Palma. He just copies other filmmakers. He doesn't have a single original bone in his body. I couldn't disagree more. If you watch the opening sequence in Inglourious, it's not that he's just riffing on it. Look at the way he's kind of giving it new life, recoding it. Look at the way, you know, one of my favorite scenes is is when one of the daughters is hanging up the clothes. Mm. And just look at the colors, right? The grass is so rich. They're really saturating the color. The sheets are like white, white, white. And then in the deep background over her shoulder that you see in the Nazis coming in. And is it the Beethoven that kicks in? The really hardcore kind of minor thing from Beethoven. And I just, it's so beautifully used because what's going to be really critical is that the Morricone is going to come in later. So he uses that as this kind of really dark key to bring into the mm. film as the Nazis arrive. And then, the, like, the, I, I said dramaturgy before, and by that I just mean the organization of the action and the people within space is a marvel. You can, like, I do this with honors students sometimes. We sometimes just study a minute of the opening sequence in Glorious inside the cabin and just watching what the camera does and the way looks are exchanged just to build rhythm and build levels of meaning. The challenge for me, and I think it's the reason Tarantino thinks this is his greatest ever sequence. How are you gonna convince Monsieur Lepadit, who's hiding the Jews, 
he's probably been hiding there for like at this point a good year or two mm. right they th- he's been hiding the entire family um, he has his own family how are you going to get him to turn that's the kind of moment of transformation so you know I'm sure that if you're in film school and they were teaching about screenwriting they'd go okay how are we going to bring this up to get that moment of transition and it's really a simple moment 10 minutes of breaking this guy down none of this works if the actor that he's acting with isn't yep. as good now, I, I should know his name I should have looked up his name mm. He is incredible mm. in this film. Because heaps of his stuff is reactionless, yeah. right? I mean, so he has to contain himself. And for me, the moment is, because Christopher Walsh knows. He goes like, you know, there's a subtext. You know how people talk about subtext in screenwriting? The subtext of the whole sequence is, let's not screw around with you. We know what's going on. So we're going to perform this little dance. But we kind of know where it's going to end. And I think that's such a strong subtext. It's so performative. The moment where uh, Landa says, you might think that uh, if you are harboring Jews, it will be met with punishment. On the contrary, you will be met with reward. And the camera cuts back, and you can see this moment of just defeat, resignation. And it's beautiful. And the other thing I want to say is, and Craig, you made a point in all of our conversations Mm. a, a while back before we started recording, that the way they use the knowledge of English versus the knowledge yes. of French. Yeah, I love that. Yes. That that was but a I really... But I think that's... Can you just go into yeah, that Yeah, I mean, it's like encoding what we... By 2008 or nine, we're used to this trope of characters sitting down going, hey, do you speak English? Yeah, I speak English. Next thing you know, they're not having to do subtitles and yes. everyone can relax. Yeah. And I thought that's exactly what this does. Yeah. But then it gets revealed at the end. The reason that, uh, that Landa has done English. it yes. is because he knows or suspects the Jews yeah. underneath, they don't yeah. understand English. And it's just horrible because it's like, Oh, I was complacent. I joined in with that because I was like, yeah, I got you. I've seen this before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with yeah. you. I know why we're doing this. But it's not. It's because of something far yeah. more deep. So it was a trick on me as an audience as well. Which and is I very clever. Great. And in yeah. fact, quite sinister, right? One of the interesting, uh, I like watching that film and I sometimes ask students, is, at what moment does Landa um, take over the ascendancy? Mm. And when does he know? And then it's a moment, and then it's a process of I'm going to peel back the layers. I'm going to expose this guy, and he's going to have to confess it. And that moment of confession is truly painful to watch. But here's the issue for me. So when I watch Inglorious, I've probably seen it three times now, but, and I need to watch it again. So I will say, and I will admit to that, it's probably my least known or understood Tarantino because I've seen all the other ones so many times, right? Mm. But for me, it doesn't get better than this opening scene. Yeah. And that is always something I think about as I'm watching the movie. I can't get back to that mm. opening, the height that that opening scene reached. I really enjoy his performance of the cream. Uh, sorry, the delicious the milk. Oh, uh, yes. The right. milk. Oh, the uh, milk. Only because the way oh, no. that it, it's encoded, and I think it's because he's worked with it and he's gone, well, I know that the strudel's going to be a big moment. Yeah. I'm going to play the cream up. I mean, sorry, the milk up, the yes. delicious milk. So that he, it's, ca- it's connecting that joy of this drink or this food mm. Um, this carnal thing with what will happen later so yeah. that when she sits opposite him, it's far more terrorizing because of the emphasis on the strudel, yeah, which I, I think I is agree. both Tarantino's writing and, and directing. But also um, I think it's it's his performance that says, yeah. I know I connect these two things yeah. and it's going to hurt people and it will make the audience feel something. I think that's great because mm. one of the things that I – I'm really always fascinated by Tarantino, and it's why I see him as a kind of De Palma or a Hitchcock, is that 
for example, when they're eating the strudel, mm. uh, they bring up the sound, <laughs> all the kind of, you know, whatever they've like been foley or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Foley, yeah, yeah. And so they brought it up dramatically because he wants you to be there with just how awful this must be listening to for Shoshana. Right, yeah, and and you know even when he's writing with his fountain pen, yeah. I love that when he's because the sound is so high. Mm. And one of my actual favorite shots is going to sound really ridiculous, but in that whole opening scene, is when he takes out the fountain pen, dips it in the ink, yeah. shakes it, goes into write, and we get this kind of what do they call those iris Cursive? things like a like oh. a, a, a over the the image? He's oh, blurred the a vignette or a gradient. Yeah, well, yeah. he's just he's blurred out the rest of the screen, yeah. as if to isolate that act of writing. But then he brings up the sound of the. The pen scratching, on the paper, and yeah. I, yeah, and the scratching. So it's as if, you know, in another world, someone's going to go, "Wow, what a sensory form of filmmaking." And I think that's Tarantino trying to pull us into a very horrible experience, and you feel it. You know, I, I, and and so okay, that's Tarantino. That's as good as anything in Tarantino. I think it's as good as any sequence in the last thirty years of cinema. Oh. All right, well, here's the question then, film versus film. Mm. Bruce, I get a feeling you're going to say Glorious Bastards over Eagles Well, it's hard Dare? to say because when I was seven, where Eagles <laughs> Dare was my number two movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm probably going to say Inglorious. Mm-hmm. I think Glorious. look, one, can I say one thing we haven't mentioned? Just really quickly touch on. Yeah. We haven't talked about the politics of Inglorious. Yeah, right? okay. And that the film got a lot of crap. Well, and so some something that I think... Every view, every listening. Wait, we should explain decide. that. Like the, the 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 reason it got a lot of crap yeah. is because it re. It's what? an alternative history. Yeah, an alternative. which Hitler's killed. <laughs> which you know? Jewish well, people? Did, Jews. Some people yeah. viewed it as disrespectful that you could even attempt to rewrite yes. history. And like, who the hell did this Tarantino oh, oh, and think he this was? History, right? Especially this history. Yeah. So wh- a, a common reading of it from often Jewish critics was that oh well this is brilliant he. He rescues us, the Jews, by turning the Jews into barbaric, violent, bloodlusting. Wait, you said brilliant? You mean sarcastic? sarcastic. Yeah, like but bloodlusting kind of heroes. Yeah, right. And that's not what we want, right? We don't want the Jews to be turned into sort of heroic cardboard caricatures. Mm. So that was a big criticism. A lot of people viewed it as like a, a horribly, on, on the flip side, a kind of Zionist film because what? it was like the Jews like affirming their power and their capacity wow. to do violence. So th- like there was a real controversy. And how you sit with it is going to have an impact on how you sit with something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well because there he goes for alternative history for the Manson years, right? Which is an era that all of us have. Well, that's what I kind of dug about this movie is that as someone who can... uh, No, I can't. But, I mean, I am not so engaged with Jewish debate about all of this stuff. I'm engaged with movies and cinema. And when I see a movie go, well, it should hit uh, Hitler in the face several times, (laughs) I'm like, yeah, this is fun. (laughs) It's it's sad to say I was ecstatic. (laughs) But see, I mean... (laughs) I think that's the danger of taking someone like Tarantino, moving through a kind of analysis that's a political or philosophical mm. analysis of what he does. Because I think at times Tarantino is going to, I mean, if I'm, I might be wrong, but I think he's going to say it's just a bunch of people on a mission to do something. Because otherwise, why would you have Fassbinder and Mike Myers speaking in what a really mm. farcical terms? Except, I, mean, I, I get what you're saying, except what do you do then when his next movie is Django? 
Like, how do you read Django? Because he yeah. did the whole bloody circuit where he was talking about slavery. And I got to say, yeah. at that point, I felt, whoa, 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 time to pull your head in every year. Like, <laughs> I, I don't need Quentin Tarantino to start depicting you know, emancipatory narratives in the era of slavery via his kind of unique genre. And I think it's one reason why I struggle a bit with Django, mm. but can fully and kind of lovingly embracing glory. But I've, I've never gone down that sort of pathway with Tarantino. Like, I take yeah. it all with a grain of salt. Like, if you listen, I know people who listen to his podcast when he, when he deconstructs yeah. Moonraker. Oh, that's good. You've got to take everything with a grain of salt if with For people guy. who don't know, check mm. out Tarantino and Roger What Avery. does he say about Moonraker? Uh, he's uh, going, he says um, so Roger Avery says, <laughs> I watched it again with my daughter, and yeah. he said, it's time to reconsider Moonraker, and in fact, reconsider all of Roger Moore. And Tarantino goes, it's not time to reconsider any of those things. <laughs> So he hates and he just unloads on it. Wow. But okay, the politics in where Eagles Dare Mm. uh, at a time where Nazis could just be pure villains. Like there was no way about it. Like these are people on a a mission adventure. Well, well, to some extent, it's apolitical because it's an assumed position that the Nazis were the terrible people and the allies were. That's the only reason Tarantino gets away with it. He makes it anybody other than Nazis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even someone like James Cameron doing. True Lies with Middle Eastern villains has yeah. not aged very well. No. But no one's going to say, how dare you show Nazis in that way? It's the one free pass any filmmaker gets. Well, there you go, filmmakers. Uh, <laughs> make note, have a go at Nazis. But is it? I mean, well, look at, how well, long do we have? Because look at all the Trump, uh, the Trumpkins, all those kids that are yeah. becoming Nazis now. I don't know. Maybe you're listening. <laughs> write it. Write in. Let us know. What are they, Trumpkins? You know the little the yeah. dudes who I, love Trump and yeah, yeah, fully yeah, 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 embrace. I'm never, the, I, I'm never going to look to Tarantino to provide social commentary. Yeah. No, like, but I'm, I'm not sure, interested. I'm in exactly that. the same. I then don't want him to start doing the circuit, providing social commentary. All right. Well, there it is. We got political at the end. That's <laughs> it for our World War II film comparison. Next week, we're going to go behind the scenes as we look at two of the greatest documentaries about filmmaking ever made. One is an intense portrait of passion and determination as Francis Ford Coppola puts everything on the line to make the film that changed the landscape of cinema in the 1991 documentary Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse. And the other is the hopeful and equally impassioned story of a film fan and wannabe filmmaker who spends years trying to complete his own short horror film, Coven, in the 19... Or Coven, in the 19... Yes? Is Coven or Coven on uh, YouTube? Uh, uh, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but it's $250 VHS when it pops up on eBay nowadays. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the 1999 Sundance winner for Best Documentary, American Movie. If you haven't seen them, look for them now on YouTube and Apple Movies. I believe you can find them there in Australia. Yeah, I think I looked it up. I think, um, look, these are documentaries, so a little bit harder to come by, but I think for around about four bucks, you can get it through a streaming service. Also, if you have access to university accounts, or certainly Sydney Uni, Mm -hmm. if you go to Canopy, I think they've got Hearts of Darkness. Okay, there you go. And I don't know if they've got American Movie. Well, that's definitely on uh, Google and YouTube. I know you can buy it there for a couple of dollars. And also just... uh, uh, a shout out to Tubi TV because I've been getting into that a bit, Bruce. Yeah. After you put Tubi's me onto amazing. it, there's a bunch like Peep and Tom, for example, turned up on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Tubi also TV. Also, some HD files on Tubi. 
Yeah, oh, I also want to tell you if you are watching Hearts of Darkness and you're a vegan or you're politically opposed to seeing oh, yeah. animals oh, yes, being hurt, that does happen in that movie as it does also in Apocalypse Now. So if yep. you're watching either of those, watch out. Um, all right, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen as it will help other people to find us and that's what we need because no one's listening. <laughs> it's just you, dude. No, Craig, you can. Uh, we broke uh, 6,000 downloads. That's right, 6,000 downloads. There you go. And they're really, all. I'm very proud of this podcast. Bruce now owns 5,000 um, uh, devices uh, that he's got fired <laughs> up at, at his house just downloading the thing nonstop. <laughs> we're also on Instagram at Film vs. Film Podcast. Have a listen to that. And we're also doing weekly, uh, on a Friday, we try and put up what we're watching. Mm. So Wait, we can I make an announcement? Yeah, please. When Craig oh, came over our place the other day, he brought up <laughs> presents. Yes. And I finally got my Murder, She Wrote t-shirt. I love it, Craig. I've been wearing it and everywhere. And I got the... Portrait of a Lady on Fire t-shirt, yeah, which very is very close to my heart. Yes, I've made a Portrait of Lady on Fire. Uh, these t-shirts are not available. They're just for my friends. I make them, in, but Portrait of Lady on Fire is a great one. It's but if you do awesome. want to buy t-shirts from our channel, <laughs> yeah. it's only 150 bucks. <laughs> okay, all right, let us know. All right, thank you for listening. Uh, we will see you next week with our exciting documentary podcast. Thanks for listening. I've been Craig Anderson. I've been Bruce Isaacs. I've been Herschel Isaacs. Join us next time for Film versus Film. Take two. Film. Verse. Film. Film.